Why are you so Why are you so glum there, Chum? Ah, uh, you know, it sometimes it's just really hard saying goodbye to a, a franchise you really like or a franchise that has has meant something meaningful to you that that has really kind of defined an era in your life. What, well, which one are you talking about? Oh, uh, you know, I mean, I, 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 I'm just saying that you know, it's hard to say goodbye when. Uh, these characters have been with you for so long, and I really feel like you know, I've, you know, saying goodbye to the Flowers in the Attic franchise from Lifetime. I'm just, I'm just, I, don't, I honestly don't know how I'm gonna, how I'm gonna deal with it. Well, look, no matter what happens, even though they're gone, I'm still here, and just know that I love you like a brother. Yeah, that's, in an that, attic. That, that's 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 nice. But is there anything else that we've got that'll help with the pain? Oh well, we've—I'm pretty sure we've got some more uh, Winsast going on. No, no, that'll, that really won't won't do it. <laughs> Ooh, I know, beer. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to Digital Noise. Oh, yeah, yet another fun-packed week. I'm Richard. And I'm Joe. Yeah, as always, unless the mind swaps worked again. Uh, oh, oh, man, that's why I got a beard today. Yeah. Oh. Oh, oh. Well, you know, there's only one way to start the show. We've kind of given you the hint on this. Uh, um, oh, actually, no, the real way to start the show is to do the housekeeping, because we're that professional. <laughs> yeah, yeah. no, this is, this is, this is a well-oiled machine we've got going on here. <laughs> Overly lubricated, I think, is actually the technical term. Yeah, thank you, as always, for listening to the show. Um, if you are watching it uh, on your, uh, your beautiful machine at home, uh, look below the stream and you will see pictures of all the titles that we talk about this week uh these link directly to the amazon page for each of those um uh, each of those titles and why would we want to why would we want to go to the amazon page because jeff bezos is satan apparently but apart from that (laughs) with that coda uh if you click on the link it will take you to that title right you can buy that title on um through amazon with with money with money Huh. Uh, or the tears of small children, um, which I believe are, are uh, you know, a, a, yeah, no, those, those really, are Bezos box. Yeah, um, but you do that, we actually get a slight kickback from Amazon. Oh, a little under the table sort of thing. More importantly, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and just as wonderfully, if you do, you go to Amazon. Anything you buy after you click through that link on that trip to Amazon, right. we get a kickback for every single item. So, so literally, you could go and go. You know what? I don't want to buy you know, seeds of tomorrow, after all. <laughs> but but I do need a, a doggy vest. Uh, yeah. Well, we get that. We we would get a tiny portion of that doggy vest. We would get a, you know several several strands of cotton from oh, that nice. doggy vest. Yeah. Uh, somebody recently bought a, an entire fridge uh, through Amazon, and we're like, what? <laughs> what what happened? Uh, this is this is unexpected. Uh, so, but you can also don't forget if you don't feel like buying anything, you can always subscribe to um, the glory that that is uh, oneofus.net. 
you can you know becoming a subscriber uh, is the easiest simplest way you get access to all kinds of uh, uh, member uh, benefits and bonuses uh, you you know it, it it helps us it helps you um, you can listen to uh, Chris and Brian's weekly show uh, the breakfast pub we've got all kinds of uh, film commentaries being added to on it basically a weekly basis uh, so yeah no well, not to mention not to- the uh, the men of one of us uh, swimsuit calendar can we can we never mention that again? <laughs> oh no no it's 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 in high demand. The fans have been asking. I think they've been asking to have their eyes gouged out instead. <laughs> but anyway, you know what we should speaking move speaking of eyes being gouged out. We, you know what's what it's time for? The, the reviews. Yes. Mode. So let's let's dive in. Oh, farewell indeed to the worst franchise that TV has given us. The resurrection of the terrible, terrible (laughs) Flowers in the Attic franchise. Seeds of Yesterday, the final film. Thank God. (laughs) We have moved. At last I can get to it. Regular listeners will know. I have been horribly obsessed uh, with this nightmare factory of a franchise, which is really, as you put it, you know, Wincest. Um, the, the, the series started, it seems so long ago now, it, it's, it's like a heroin addiction, it just feels like it's been with me forever, um, with the basic plot of, this family goes, ah, we don't really like having our kids, we're going to stick them up in the attic, um, and uh, they're going to start having sex with each other, and we're just going to gloss over this. Hey, bodies got to be discovered. Uh, well, we're all over the Lifetime Network. Um, <laughs> and... Yeah, it carried on because, you know, if this was a regular family, then it would be unacceptable. But they're upper class. Oh, well, yeah, then you expect it. It's just charming. (laughs) Um, And the franchise has gone on. And, like, these are based on a series of 1970s and 80s books. Um, Yeah, I remember my mother and my aunts were just uh, obsessed with them. These books said something really dark uh, and twisted about female sexuality in the 70s Mm, and 80s. Oh, yeah, because of the reaction. (laughs) Oh, yeah, they were like, these are wonderful. Like, no, they're not. They're creepy as all hell. Yeah, I know I'm 10, but reading the back of this book, and I am horrified. (laughs) And then as they go on, they throw in the other great 70s, 80s sexual obsession, ballet. Oh, yeah, no, oh, you have holy to. holy hell. <laughs> well, well, now we've got to the, the final of the franchise, which is rather fortunate because I don't, I don't think, uh, you know, porn filters could, <laughs> could handle this, this much garbage. Seeds of Yesterday, out now on DVD. You may well have already caught this on television after Lifetime showed it. Um, God curse your soul if you tuned in for this or put it on your DVR because the this is is terrible. This follows the um, the next generation of the Dollenganger family. Um, oh my God, what is not in here? Um, Blue babies, crazy religion. Uh, next generation of incest, almost incest, uh, sleeping with your adopted sister, trying to sleep with your mother. We've never had a trying to sleep with your mother before. This well, is this is new to the franchise. Yeah, this isn't sleepwalkers. Yeah, well, that was like, uh, is she going to blow him? Oh, oh dear God, so, no, he's testing her. But so he is, is Heather Graham in this? Yeah, Heather Graham is back. Okay. Heather Graham is, is back somewhere, I'm fairly sure. They're all starting to blur into one. This one... <laughs> Yeah, the, the previous ones were just bad. This one, I think, finally embraced how ridiculous the whole thing is. Because now you moved on to the next generation of the family, and the kids are now 
you know, quasi-successful. One of them has become a ballet dancer and hilariously suffers a, a broken back at a family recital of, of Salome. Um, which, you know, like, who does that? Oh, rich, crazy people who are fucking each other. That's that's who does this. This whole thing is... It's, it's, they've, they've now accepted this is a deranged, gothic mess. Uh, there are weird, overt references to there will be blood. And I'm like... You you're throwing that in. You're you're you have the gall to believe that you can get away with this. There's just nothing right about, so, but, <laughs> about but this from, debacle. From what you're saying, it kind of sounds like they took a Sharknado two approach of yeah, we tried in earnest in the first one, and now screw it, we're just we're just going to intentionally do this. But now it's so creepy as well because the, the the books as they went on started off kind of like as a gothic horror and then they were just like nah you're gonna you just have to work out who's gonna be fucking who next mm-hmm. like which unacceptable <laughs> relationship is gonna is gonna fulminate now so within but it's gonna but at least on the page you know it's not like bam chikawawa it's just creepy here it's like no that's his stepsister who has been raised to believe that they really are siblings like trying to blow him I like nothing nothing about this is right acceptable or excusable I'm like even in in, in the fact they finally embrace the fact that this is weird gothic camp mm-hmm. it, it still doesn't it's still not excusable like these are morally reprehensible and the fact that they have been resurrected at this point in the history of pop culture baffles me totally baffles well i mean that brings up so many questions so like do they do they try to hide the fact that to the outside world that they're shipping their kin or well this is the thing about it that this only works if you believe that this is in a totally enclosed environment where nobody notices anything where a pair of 15 year olds in an incestuous relationship can can run away uh, and establish lives not just as kind of regular people, but one of them becomes a, a highly a highly skilled ballet dancer who gets accepted into a major school, and the other one becomes a doctor. And you're like, who's checking IDs or transcripts? I was about How to say, yeah. They, like, literally none of this makes any sense. It's like, you really have to go, eh, it's just happening, and yeah, by the way, yeah... Um, that shoulder strap is coming down in five seconds and, and that's the funniest thing about this you can tell they're TV movies mm-hmm. because the instant the shoulder strap comes down fade to black clear commercial break right 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 like, countdown in between I, nothing about this is right or forgivable this is <laughs> this is about as bad as as competently made entertainment gets so like, is- everything about it is just yeah, creepy and exploitative, and not in the good way. I am a big fan of creepy exploitation. Trust me, <laughs> I'm okay with that. But this, I mean, I, you know, Charles Band. They don't come much creepier or exploitative than Charles Band's work. But this is this wants to sell itself as something more aspirational, and it, you know, and keep saying you you feel like the Lifetime Network is on the verge of becoming self-aware. Uh, this is more like um, it's becoming Mr. Me Speaks um, from um, Rick and Morty. That it's running around trying to solve a problem so it can stop existing, <laughs> but it doesn't know what the problem is. Like it's an insoluble thing, which is basically no matter what morally reprehensible garbage you throw at the lifetime audience, they they are going to lap it up. 
you know, this is, you know, I really think this was their attempt to bottom out, and it's just proved that they can't. It's This is a hole they just keep digging for themselves. <laughs> they're, they're I have literally no idea how much worse Lifetime can get than this, but so, they're so going to try and tell us. You're, you're saying it's not even, like, grudge-watch-worthy? Uh, this isn't even, like, hate-fuck-watch-worthy. This is just... This is just one of those things that I just have to ask myself, you know, what exactly... Um, did cinema do to us <laughs> uh, for us to deserve this? Uh, moving on to, to something that I'm going to be very interested to uh, get your take on this because this has been one of these films I think got kicked from pillar to post mm-hmm. when it was first released, and that is The Water Diviner, uh, which is Russell Crowe uh, as actor and director. Um, Tackling one of those odd corners of Australian history um, that it kind of you know, it's so part of Australian history that it's very interesting to see how it translates out. Right. And yeah. no, before anybody asks, no, I'm not Australian. I get <laughs> I get confused with Australian all the time in in Texas, and it's very weird. Uh, but I will say that the difference between, as the joke goes, between an Australian and a Yorkshireman is that a Yorkshireman's grandfather could outrun the cops. <laughs> <laughs> well, what what I what I did really find fascinating was the time period. You know, starting off with with trench warfare, which was some of the nastiest, most brutal warfare ever seen in the history of mankind, uh, and then and then just sweeping shots of, of the Australian countryside. Yeah, <laughs> it was just, it was uh, like, ooh, where's this gonna go? Uh, I. You know, we can we can talk more at length about uh, the, well, the the direction. The base the basic story here is that Russell Crowe plays a farmer um, in uh, the outback of Australia uh, in 1919, um, and he's lost both his son, uh, all three of his sons, um, during the uh, Battle of Gallipoli, uh, which was you know a, a massive loss during World War One for the Australians. You know, it's it's the it's the their battle of the bulge, mm-hmm. yeah. You know, it's something that is you know deeply scarred into their psyche, um, and he, you know, he's been dealing with the fact that his wife has clearly gone insane as a result of this, um, and finds her one day dead in uh, the lo- in the in the local pond. Yeah, she she was just a bobber. Yeah, and. You know, there's this question of whether she committed suicide or not, which you know leads to him getting into uh, tension with with the local priest. So he makes a promise uh, to her that she will be buried with their sons, that he will go to Turkey and he will find the bodies of their sons and bring them back. Yeah, I was wondering how he was going to do that, like a giant rucksack. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, that's one of those things that, like, in a way, he's not thinking either. He has yeah. his obsession. But it, the the water diviner aspect of it is the, that he is a water diviner. That he goes out into the into the outback and with his Thousand, two rods and, yeah. and finds water and digs it up. And you kind of give him this idea that he's just going to go out there mystically and solve <laughs> the problem. Right. But then when he actually gets there, it like it goes no. There was a massive operation that was ongoing between the Australians and the Turks to try and find where all these bodies were buried and to take them back to Australia. And that this guy turns up and he's putting this pressure on them they ever had because to get from Australia to Turkey in 1919, if you were a farmer, this is is insane. And when he gets there, 
he's really dropped into a story that I don't think I've seen told in Australian cinema before, which is what do the people of Turkey feel about the fact that the, that the Australians turned up and fought this war on their backyard? Yeah, like why? And there, there were thousands of the, the, thousands of their of their kids died there, and what what it meant to the Turks and what it means to the Australians and the impact of Gallipoli and the impact of the entire war, and that that you know a lot of people didn't relate to this when it first came out. I really found it fascinating. Well, th- that is that is always uh, a fascinating ground that that I think usually doesn't get much attention is after the wars are fought and the victors have are divvying up the spoils. How they interact with the conquered is is always just fascinating to watch. Like uh, uh, after after the the occupation, uh, you know, when the when the U.S. went into Japan and and how how that sort of thing happened, and obviously there was a bunch of. Uh, uh, cheesy James Mitchell movies yeah. that were made, but but no, but a- actually, you know, kind of like yeah, over here at this hill, like uh, if you guys had just tried a little harder, you could have won the entire thing. You know, just it's it's real weird the the respect, but a smoldering hatred while still having to keep in mind, yeah, you fought in this war, but you're not the one who instigated it. Like yeah. higher up people decided that they were going to screw with all this. So yeah. yeah, that that's the part that I really liked glomming onto. Uh, and there is a kind of crammed in romance here, as, but even that actually has some cultural resonance because the whole point is that Russell Crowe's character goes and stays in this hotel, um, and the family that runs it are very divided because the you know the, the guy who owned it died during the war. His wife wants to stay westernized because this was the point where Turkey was was it was the confluence. Yeah. Between Europe and and Asia Minor, it, it's a, you know it's very culturally divided. Whereas her brother-in-law says, "No, we we have to be a, an Ottoman place. We're not for Westerners. The West doesn't want us. We have to accept ourselves as as a part of Asia Minor, as part mm-hmm. of, the, of of a different culture." And it's yeah, I mean, you know, there's going to be a, a romance in there somewhere. But I actually think it was handled with surprising delicacy, hmm. uh, and that it had an extra depth because it did put it into this cultural context. I mean, this is not the great. Let's get this clear: this is not the greatest film. No, no, it's but not. It's not think, high art. I think Russell Crowe got he kind of got hammered for that, but I think he's just one of these people that it doesn't matter what he's going to do at the moment. I think Russell Crowe is going to get hammered for everything he does. Oh, yeah, people just uh, don't want to like him. Yeah, and, and I found this a lot more charming and incisive and thoughtful than um, you normally see. And, and, you know, honestly, anything that puts a little bit of um, Australian cultural history and Turkish cultural history, and that's what it is at the end of the day. It's, it's mm-hmm. about... And it, it's, it, you know, there are, there's so much of a question about the relationship between Europe and uh, Asia at the moment, Asia Minor at the moment. That's a, it's such a big concern. Um, but to have a country that is westernised, but not in Europe... And isn't America as a global superpower, which is a whole different kettle of fish when it comes to Turkey? That's really fascinating because this was such a part of, of Australian history. You know, and you know, Crow turns up and he does the Crow stoic thing, <laughs> but he does it. You know, you know, he does it the way that he's always going to do it. I, you know, I like I said, I actually think this was um, a lot more than I was um, expecting. Uh, feature uh, you know, special features wise. There's a, a making of, which is 
uh, very much what you would expect. Not least going, not, not least reminding you that trying to make a film in Australia is a terrible plan because it's a horrible place where everything is trying to kill you. It's not Sorry, Australians, life. but you know this. Um, uh, a short doc- uh, documentary about uh, the Battle of Gallipoli, which, if you don't know anything about this, is probably yeah. worth. I mean, it does actually do a decent job of, of going. Hey, in ten minutes, we're going to explain to you like why this is so important to the plot. Why, you know, particularly for an Australian audience, you don't need to explain it because they already know. Right. Grow up with this. So you know, uh, yeah, I was um, more charmed by this than I expected. I mean. I mean What's your general take? Uh, I, I think it was fine. Uh, <laughs> I wasn't particularly charmed, but I didn't hate it. I, I thought the music was handled kind of oddly. Uh, like, it kind of distracted me. Yeah. I, I, however, the sound mix is amazing. It I is, was, yeah. I was, um, it's one of the best sound mixes of a war film I've ever heard because I, 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 you know, when the, the initial uh, seed sequences uh, during the trenches, in the trenches in Gallipoli, um, I was sat there with my, my sound bar on. My dog sprinted across the room when the first <laughs> shell hit. And she's blind. So it was, I was like, holy shit, I've got to turn this down. But it, like, it, 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 the sound mix did those sequences well. But then you didn't have to turn the volume yeah, up to yeah, listen yeah. to the actual sm- smaller, more intimate conversational stuff. So, I mean, this is, you know, if nothing else, this should really be a masterclass in how to mix a film. <laughs> <laughs> Which sounds like damning with fake praise, but I, I really liked it. Now, another master class would be... Oh, my God. There's going to be no damning with faint praise. There's just going to be damning here for Toolbox Murders 2. Oh, oh, my. Oh, my. Oh, Uh, God. Why? Anybody? (sighs) Anybody? (laughs) I really really feel that this was uh, Uwebol got hired by the Travel Channel to make a scary. (laughs) I was just baffled by it. This is just a little bit of of back history here. If you've never seen it, the original Toolbox Murders is one of the better... It it gets called a slasher movie. It's really an Americanized version of the giallo Mm -hmm. uh, genre. And and it's actually kind of effective. It's creepy and the the killer has deep psychological issues that make you go, yeah. That's why he's wandering around and killing everybody in the apartment complex. I mean, the fact that no, the people keep moving into the apartment complex after like the fourth killing. Hey, it, rent it, so low, man. It is kind of stupid. Um, but there was actually a very effective uh, remake done by Toby Hooper back in I, think was, I want to say 2004, but it could have been after that, which is actually really good, mm-hmm. and nobody expected it to be. And he took the best of the original, added on some stuff that really worked, and you're like. Yeah, hell, yeah, this is actually pretty good. This, oh, this, God, it's, 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 it's like a proper movie had leftover in the budget, and they were like, screw it, let's just do this. <laughs> Nothing about, you know, I, I can handle extreme underground gore films. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't have an issue with them in the way that a lot of people do, because I do go, you know, yeah, there's a section of the market that is only watching them because they are gruesome and disturbing and they get off on that i you know i find them problematic um but you know i I also have this thing with you know people with films like collar that you say well okay it's gruesome and disturbing but it's meant to be you know it it does say you know how much are you enjoying this horror film because it's a horror film and how much are you actually kind of taking the morality lesson away from it 
this just felt like tedious mm-hmm. exploitation for what? no reason. Oh, and there is a horribly long story to this, as, uh, addition to this story, story as well. That actually the producer and the director fell out so badly. The director uh, did his own cut. Um, and released that under a different name, and then they all have huge fallings out. And this is kind of a weird, bastardized, compromised cut that actually makes even less sense than I think anything else it could. <laughs> well, like, uh, as far as torture porn goes, it fails at even that. Because <laughs> like, it is so ridiculous, but in an underwhelming way. Yeah. I mean, the basic plot is that... Um, uh, Samantha Foster, played by Chantal Lewis, is taken prisoner by um, the killer from the first film, Coffin Baby, played by Chris Doyle. Um, and he kidnaps other people and kills them in front of her. And then he tortures her. A bit. A not, bit. Not too much. Not as much. Um, and that's kind of it. Uh, and then and then Bruce Dern, because... Bruce Dern turns up for no readily apparent reason. Um, yeah, nothing worthwhile. Like, yeah, no, I, I couldn't even like laugh at the campy gore. Yeah, like, like, it was it was just irredeemable. Yeah, I mean, at the point where you're kind of going, so are we supposed to like her? Is it supposed to be kind of a you know what will you do in this situation to survive when you know that if the only thing you're being fed is is the uh, sliced off flesh. Uh, of your boyfriend who you then reconstruct the body parts so you've got somebody to talk to you know like would you do that what does it you know hey she does get popcorn too though she does get popcorn at one point this is ah right because no idea why this was made yeah was there supposed to be like a descent into madness not really like there's no clear motivation for anything save that just like oh Mm, I just think torture this is, today. This and, and it doesn't even really connect very heavily with the first one, apart from the fact that Chris Doyle is is back as Coffin Baby, and you really feel this. You know, after the first one, there was the opportunity to do something interesting with Coffin Baby and kind of establish him as a the, you know a, the next horrible slasher, get a small franchise going, something of the, something of the hatchet scale. Well, sure, because he this did look cute. Yeah, like you know, he had a cute little face, and I was like, oh, but he, this is just. This is a, a really wasted opportunity after the the first remake actually did something good with the franchise. Yeah, and and not not to be too harsh. Yeah, screw it. Uh, <laughs> Can you be too harsh? I, about I don't. This? I don't think uh, it, it's really gruesome if you club somebody in the head so they're either dead or completely knocked out, and then start working on the body. Yeah, because <laughs> what's the point? Yeah, I, unfortunately, the only extra on this is the trailer. Yeah. Uh, weirdly, the theatrical trailer, because this somehow scraped through with a limited theatrical release, which is inexplicable. I mean, this is one of the ones where I honestly look at and go, there's no justification for this being released. You know, the Coffin Baby cut isn't much better. They could have, you know, nobody's really clear how different this is because, it, you know, you kind of swiped the memory of that shit from your head. This is This was... This feels like somebody went. Yeah, we got to we got to make some money back, um, and let's do it. Or keeping the Blu-ray manufacturers in business. Uh, <laughs> well, not if they're just stuck with the bills for this crap. Um, it's kind of you know. I feel like a bit of a, a an almost palate cleanser because the purpose of a palate cleanser is to provide you with something 
bland <laughs> to no, that's, that's completely fair to uh, wipe away an extreme taste <laughs> from your mouth um, and thus it is with, with true story hey bro true story yeah which is actually a true, true story, story. Um, this is based on the uh, the very peculiar story um, that is completely true um, bafflingly of um, Michael Finkel. Michael Finkel, who was a writer of the New York Times and was discredited because he, uh, he basically made up is is kind of the extreme way of putting it. But he, he lazily played, fabricated. He well, he put characters together with, for for a story. He yeah, made a composite, uh, which is you know inexcusable. Um, he felt that he still made the point. He was wrong. Um, <laughs> He was going through this crisis of, of journalistic faith in his own abilities because this guy was going somewhere, going somewhere fast. Um, while he is kind of, you know, just holed up, pouring over his own own sense of guilt, he discovered that a guy called Christian Longo had killed his family. He killed his own family and then taken off to Mexico and was pretending to be Finkel, was using Finkel's name. Well, when he gets arrested... Finkel obviously goes, well, this is bizarre. Um, and I've got this, an in. This is, and I've got an in with, with a, a story that could help redeem my career. Um, I need to go and talk to this guy who is willing to talk to me. And this is the makings of a truly fascinating story. Should we come along? Kind of falls down <laughs> on the fact that Longo is played by James Franco who, and Finkel... Oh my god. <laughs> because they seemingly cannot be separated. Is <laughs> Go on, take a guess. Take a guess who they got. <laughs> Dear audience. We'll give you we'll give you a countdown of five. It's Jess Franco it's James Franco and five, four, three, two, one. Jonah Hill. Yes, because when I think <laughs> When I think of journalist who has gone to the the worst, uh, most war torn bits of Central Africa to talk to enslaved people, oh, yeah, you think I, Jonah Hill. I think of Jonah Hill. Well, <laughs> if, if if it was East Asia, then it would be Seth Rogen, obviously. Clearly, <laughs> clearly. I you know, what what is, does does James Franco all just always just want to hang around with a slightly tubbier guy? I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This it's is the a, such a weird weird collaboration that it doesn't take away from the fact that this is a fascinating story but you do keep going oh it's them two yeah well it's you know, like oh is like, this is what's to remember it's them two yeah hey we can be around each other without without chuckling like <laughs> this is uh, definitely a thought that went and ran through my mind yeah and it, it there's the makings of something really interesting here and they do touch on some really fascinating themes about authorial responsibility about sense of self about self-delusion, about creation and fabrication of story, um, both in the media and the justice system, because Longo comes up with this incredibly complicated reason for why he did he wasn't actually the one that killed his, his wife and children. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that he, he manages to convince Finkel that he's, you know, this is not, that, that it's not all true. And you kind of buy why Finkel would fall for it because he's desperate enough but it's it's there's just something 
it always missing. feels. Yeah, yeah, I was about to there's say. A, there's felt... an absence of, of a, a, a. I don't know what it is because Franco's really good at this. I think I think he really is the thing you turn up for. Yeah, yeah. In this narrative, because he's he's this is by this is one of his strongest performances in a while because he's not just stoned all the time. Well, I, it says the director said no. <laughs> no. No getting stoned on set. Well, he already proved his chops when he was on General Hospital. So yeah. this is really the follow-up. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, as a journalist, I, I'm kind of conflicted on this because it, I I want this kind of story to be told. Well, see, I was a journalist too, and so I I had uh, the, the whole, like, yeah, you know, pressure of deadlines and, and notoriety and stuff like that. But going to the part where you're just fabricating shit, just like I can't make that leap with you. No, I, I'm very disappointed by this not being what it should be. I mean, honestly, I all the way through this, I was going, God, I really wish I was watching Shattered Glass, <laughs> which is which is a far better film on pretty much the same the same topics. Think, yeah, well, let's let's stick with the uh, the kind of detective que- detective thing for a while um, by going to one of the oddest re-releases in quite a while this is there were yeah I, I thought oh man they have quotas <laughs> clearly somebody somewhere went oh, let's let's get this one out on the uh, the stacks January man um which <laughs> there was a point where somebody was trying to sell Kevin Klein as a, a serious leading man, he's our guy. He's our guy. <laughs> he's, and that that point was was uh, the mid nineteen eighties when Norman Jewison um, uh, decided, hey, let's let's do a, a serial killer movie set in New York and have. Kevin Klein is kind of this wacky dissident within the department who's been who who he's been fired because he's too crazy and there were suspicions that he was actually on the take. Hey, he doesn't play by the by the book, man. No, he doesn't. He uses the book as a coaster because he's not that wacky. Because now he's gone off to be a fireman. Well, it's it's a clear uh, uh, career path. Yeah, from detective to fireman. Yeah, uh, because he he just can't help saving uh, saving people and helping people. Um, but his brother uh, decides to call him back, even though nobody wants him back because he's too crazy and wacky. And he's not like your standard crazy and wacky. He pulls the furniture out of his office uh, and has his friend, the artist, come in and decorate the entire place with pictures of parrots. It's, it's, it's like, I'm like, I'm so crazy, I don't need well, a chair. Well, see, that's Whoa. the thing. Is and you're he... like, you're Kevin Klein being weird at me. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're, you're not Riggs or Murtaugh uh, crazy or serious. You, you know, you're, you're just you're just a watered-down kind of so- pseudo-bohemian crazy. Yeah. The weird thing is, this, this has... A really stellar cast. It does, yeah. Which was surprising that that nothing turned up. up yeah, from you, it. I mean, you've got uh, Harvey Keitel as his brother, Danny Aiello as as the, uh, the police uh, captain who hates him because he doesn't play by the rules. God damn it! Susan Sarandon uh, as uh, Keitel's wife, who's also uh, Klein's ex you know, girlfriend. Uh, Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio is the other love interest, who's the mayor of the daughter, uh, the, the mayor's daughter. In this is supposed to be twenty-three. <laughs> yeah, and we're like, no, <laughs> no not no, even close. Clearly, clearly <laughs> not, not kidding the, anyone. Divisible by no, no, <laughs> like this, this just is. 
it's so weird because it doesn't know what it wants to be tonally. Right. Yeah. Like I think uh, the the movie vibes with with Cindy Lauper and Jeff Goldblum had, had a better idea of what it was, and it was about detectives in South America. Uh, this. <laughs> uh, uh, his sleuthing ability he he has what would later become a lot of house moments where yeah. he, where something completely unconnected just flashes by in the background and then he 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 knows it <laughs> yeah or and, it, and there's no logic to anything that goes on and it's such a weird decision for Jewison to do this film i don't know cuz it 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 doesn't it's it's a fairly dark topic. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a, it's it, you know it's about cops on the take and and uh, a serial killer, and then the whole cops on the take thing disappears without traces. Oh yeah, for like ninety percent of the movie, it's literally like five minutes at the beginning, five minutes at the end, and that's the only reference you get. And it's totally it's absolutely pivotal to the plot, but it's like not you didn't write it in there right, the like, serial like, killer literally is some dude I mean I don't want to be spoilerific but yeah, the whole but, but, thing yeah, is like yeah, you're kind of yeah. like you know, it, it, you know, you don't, I think anybody who's going to want to buy this probably saw it at the time. Well, okay, so, so like, uh, <laughs> going to romanticize, you know, oh, young Kevin Klein with a with a, a, a daft, a daft goatee. See, I thought they were going something that could have been not interesting, but at least a little fun. The, the first time they show the the serial killer uh, attacking somebody, the build makes it look like. Oh, it's Danny Aiello, and he just went bat nuts crazy, uh, which is odd because when you finally do see the serial killer, he's a totally different guy. Yeah, like like he's shorter, he's skinnier. It's just <laughs> it, it's 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 such a weird film, um, and it did moderately well, but not well enough at the time to catapult for Kevin February Klein. Man. <laughs> yeah, Kevin Klein did not become uh, a, a top tier star. I mean, he basically had to skulk over to the UK after this uh, and kind of resurrect him with resurrect his his on screen career with with a fish called Wanda. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's he's a great talent, but this is this is possibly the worst misuse of him because I think somebody went, let's do a really conventional seventies um, New York noir, but make it wacky by putting Kevin Klein in there. That's not enough to make it wacky. You have to do a lot more and it really doesn't embrace any of the possibilities of the of of the period yeah um at least he finally became mr fish odor which is all i could think while i was watching this because that was the most interesting aspect of this (laughs) somebody (laughs) somebody uh uh, they did actually put together a very short uh making your feature to go with this uh a lot of which is norman jewish and going to start and going nah no, we all liked each other. It was all lovely, which apparently not true. Not, not true at all. And you can feel a, a, a tension. I mean, like, let's let's be honest. You put Harvey Keitel on a film in this era, <laughs> you're like, there's bound to be a little bit, a little bit of you know uh, disagreement, shall we say? Talking of disagreeable and law enforcement, <laughs> and disagreeable and law enforcement, uh, and uh, oh, hot pursuit. Um. Uh, because uh, what was that? Sandra Bullock, Melissa McCarthy. Oh, the Heat. Yeah, somebody went. That sounds like a good idea. Uh, let's kind of cross that with Midnight Run. Um, uh, <laughs> let's make them both pretty and obnoxious. Yeah. Uh, welcome to a film with the two least likable leads <laughs> you will see this year. <laughs> it's a you know, hot you know, mess in pursuit of a you, joke. You, I, it's 
please, because I'm rubbing my temples pretty hard on this, please just fill... <laughs> Yeah. Fill the poor listener in. Trust so, me, we've got some good stuff coming this week, folks. Just yeah. hang on in there. There's some good we're, stuff coming. We're, we're just going to barrel through. So, uh, drug dealer's wife uh, on the run with with a uh, a witless uh, lady cop who's who's only used to doing desk clerk stuff, even though she was raised by super cop, as near as one can tell. Uh, and then wacky hijinks ensue in, in trying to stay alive. None of this works. Nope. Not, not least, because if you want to see a lack of on-screen <laughs> chemistry, Reese Witherspoon as a, a, a cop who can who everybody goes, you're boyish, Reese Witherspoon. Yeah. And Sofia Vergara, just doing the Sofia Vergara thing mm-hmm. louder than normal. <laughs> well, she didn't realize that they had mics. Yeah, uh, clearly. Clearly. This is... This is every cliche about cop um, well, and, and arguably innocent person on the run. Well, and ethnic mismatch hilarity. Oh, God. I mean, like, this is one of these films where you really you do replay what's better than this. Like, constantly. In- oh, yeah. I, I just thought about uh, Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor. Because <laughs> I'd rather watch that. Oh, Silver Bullet. Silver Streak, yeah. Silver Streak, got it, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah uh, Midnight Run, the, the other obvious reference here. Mm-hmm. And you're just looking at it and going, you made this because somebody... Well, went, be- because well, Sophia Vergara. You know, the Heat was... Oh, yeah, who, whose star is falling out of the ascendant pretty fast. Be- because of things like this. You know, this is really one of those films where you just go, you know, every bad idea... Um, Every forced lesbian joke you can possibly imagine. <laughs> yeah. It's just as like, oh, they're going to pretend to be lovers and we and it's going to be awkward for everybody concerned because you can like you can just feel the the vibe of just like nobody seemed to be having fun making this film. No, uh but uh, it's, it's it's remarkably joyless. We we uh we uh we reviewed it when it when it came out theatrically and the one thing that really stuck in my mind was the general crowd is eating it up, and I just could not understand that. Uh, Have they never seen cinema before, or, or lights, or the outside world? Well, I, I mean, uh, there, there, there was uh, a CO two problem in the theater. So. <laughs> <laughs> but no, uh, it, it's just every. It's so apparent. You, you see every joke coming. Uh, you see every situation of oh, there's going to be conflict because of this, and this person's dirty, and this is how they're going to find you know, it. Just like boom, boom, bam, like uh, movie by numbers, yeah, <laughs> or by committee. This really feels like ah, Reese Witherspoon does okay in this kind of thing where she's like a bit, or I mean, it's the Reese Witherspoon slightly awkward, but kind of warms up as a human being thing. Right, everybody learns a lesson. <laughs> Mm-hmm. You know, she gets less cranky. Sofia Vergara gets less married to a drug lord. I mean, <laughs> well, that's, I mean, that's the other thing. It's like the first big role, a big cinematic role that Sofia Vergara gets. And it's like, oh, she's, Confirm a stereotype. she's the, the loudmouth wife of, a, of a, a, a drug lord. It's like, you may want to try and push that a little bit further away from yourself. Because this, <laughs> this just feels, this feels like some producer went, equation time. I uh, just horribly disappointing. I think for all concerned. Now, <laughs> I, something. I, yeah, let's move on to something that is a hell of a lot better. Oh, quite, quite so. Um, uh, we'll I, assume the second position. Yes. 
a far, a far less erotic film about ballet than, <laughs> than, than Seeds of Yesterday. Uh, this is Match, um, which is basically a three-hander uh, with Patrick Stewart as an aging ballet instructor at Juilliard. You know, he's you know, a nice, camp old guy who's had his entire life yeah, he's really reaching the, the final days. He's just got to pass on what little bit of knowledge he, he can to um, up-and-coming young ballet dancers. Um, when this couple who say they're doing a research project, uh, played by Matthew Lillard and Carl Gugino, uh, arrive and say, hey, you know, we, we want to talk to you about your experiences in ballet in the 60s and your life. It's, it's pretty clear from very early on, from Lillard's character's great discomfort at the situation there is something ulterior going on um uh you know you really don't need to know that <laughs> this is this is the setup and in the in the way of a great three-hander this is about how the characters are defined as the store as the story and the little secret is unwrapped um and this is astounding it's fantastic uh I, I I don't know if I'm alone, but I've always thought that, that Lillard had the ability to, to really act. And I think this, like, you know, Wing Commander isn't going to show uh, his, his best work. Um, but I, I think he did a, a really good job in this. But what really astounded me, and I can't give away certain parts of, of the plot, but... At first, the way uh, Patrick Stewart was acting when he was interacting with Lillard and Gugino... I just thought, did he forget how to act? Uh, but then as, as more information is revealed, you understand why his character would, would be that way. Yeah. And then once, once the, the, the ruse is up and <laughs> he just starts being super awesome Patrick Stewart again, it was, it was, just, it was really great to see so much transformation. Well, I, uh, I, the, I, I will say that I, I have one slight problem with Patrick Stewart's performance. He really needs to stop trying to do an American accent because he really. Can't. Oh, was he? Yeah. Oh, okay. Because I was, I was wondering if he was just doing some some part of England that I was unaware well, of. The, the thing with Patrick Stewart, like the guy is a great character actor. He really is astounding. Uh, I've seen him on stage uh, in some really weird, difficult, obscure stuff uh, like Johnson over Jordan, where you know this is one of the strangest plays you will see, and he just walks away with it so beautifully I saw him in a really strange uh, esoteric play once it was called The Tempest yes. not a lot of people heard of it <laughs> minus <laughs> minus sub note um, but he you know he does he, his problem is that he actually has uh, a very thick West Yorkshire accent and when it comes out and he lets it fly mm-hmm. he's, he's all like he is nice he's not that and it's really you know beautiful to hear him do that but, uh, but to become a successful actor in the UK he had to adopt what is known as received pronunciation which is kind of the very clipped uh, Jean-Luc Picard thing that you're used to and if you've seen any of his um, performances with the Royal Shakespeare uh, and the National Theatre you know that's what you've seen that's Mm -hmm. what you've heard so he's kind of got an accent under his accent and then he's trying to do (laughs) this kind of you know, New Yorkish accent. That, yeah, like, I, I did really, not read for it's me. It's kind of all over the like. It's I, I was I was there going, oh, they should have just said that he was British and moved there when he was a kid. Yeah, yeah, that was picked up like a little bit of a twang, but it's never, but it's not really established. He's great in this, 
Gugino is 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 fabulous as always. Truly underrated actress. Lillard yet again. Uh, he's so good. He's he's a very underrated performer. I think you're absolutely extremely. Right. And in this, he has this kind of barely restrained rage. Oh yeah, yeah. As a character that doesn't tip into brutal or cartoonish. He's just really angry and he's pent up and when you find out why it's, you kind you of get decide it. with yeah. it. You, you, know, you understand who this guy is um, I mean honestly A I think that and people are, people are going to mock this but his shaggy in this, the, Scooby, the ongoing Scooby-Doo franchise he, he's the, the second best shaggy he's ever been because he, he was the only one who went, who went into the original Scooby-Doo film and went no I'm going to treat this with the respect this is a, an iconic character and it worked and he was the best thing about it um SLC Punk. He's so good in that. Oh, yeah. Um, Fat Kid Rules the World, which he directed. Really, truly recommend that. Oh, which one? Seven Ghosts? Uh, oh, um, Seventh Ghost? Yeah. I'm trying to remember. The, but, yeah. the, the not particularly good remake of the uh, of the wonderful uh, William G. Castle. The Descendants as well. He's this guy that every so often you'll, you'll go, oh, wow, I really forgot how good he was <laughs> in so many things. Um, and you know this just reinforces that he is that good. Uh, this is beautiful. It's it's tender. Um, it, it clearly shows its roots as a stage play. I mean, yeah, it makes it some does. changes. I'd be very interested to see the original text um, to see how you know because there's a couple of things they have to do that you know, break the fact that this is all generally set in one location for pretty much ninety percent of its duration. <laughs> One of the things that I really enjoyed is that by the end, nothing is solved. Uh, all, all that you've got is a little different perspective for each character and hope that that will lead them towards what they're looking for. Yeah. Oh, which I, I think that's the nice thing about it. It doesn't say, we're going to solve this. We're going to give you everything neatly tied up in a bow. You have a better understanding of who these characters are at the end of, of 100 minutes. And it, it's absolutely enthralling. Everybody's flawed. Everybody is, is touching. Everybody is, is, is deeply human in, in the most moving way. And I think that's a real testament to the script, to the performances. And as, as a, a final note, you get to hear Patrick Stewart talk about Cunnilingus. <laughs> I love Cunnilingus! <laughs> Go... I, I really felt that I made friends with that film. Oh, <laughs> okay. which might contrast with unfriended. unfriended. <laughs> AKA <laughs> Open Windows Two. Uh, <laughs> now, uh, anybody you know who, who who has heard me ramble on about it, uh, for all its flaws, I am a big fan of the film Open Windows, which its central conceit is that everything happens on one laptop screen. Mm-hmm. Uh, that it is, you know, in this parallel world where the where technology works at this ridiculous level so that, screen, you know, you can have ten windows up at the same time and they're all fine, they've all got different video streams and everything, everything works! <laughs> and you can take a laptop anywhere and even crash a car with it and you don't you don't drop your wireless signal. Yeah, no, How no, plausible but- is that? And yeah, you know, I, I kind of like, yeah, no, that's fine. This is a film predicated around the idea that uh, you can have six people on video chat on and chat on Skype at the same time, and it's not going to fall over. <laughs> and I'm like, God damn it, that's completely ridiculous, utterly implausible. This will not stand. No, Microsoft is not that successful. 
Unfriended, it's... The basic idea is that there's this bunch of high schoolers who... uh, Somebody at their school committed suicide. She was supposed to be fairly awful, but they're still kind of, you know, you shouldn't have done that after somebody sent, uh, released a video of her drunk, at, drunk and abusive at a party. Um, I, I don't find uh, her her reason for suicide convincing. Yeah, that seems like all. a little... You know, and they try and go, well, she had some issues at home, and it's like, it's it still feels like it was a reach, because you actually see the video, and it's like... Uh, okay, uh, whatever. Yeah, that's kind of, you know, standard MO for high school kids at the moment, who are dreadful. Yeah, yeah, I know they, they are, they are at least genuinely. Kids are no more awful than they have been historically, but they are more technologically enabled to be uh, awful on a grander scale. Yes, yes, uh, the, the medium by which they can be awful. So, uh, Unfriended takes place uh, a while after she uh, kills herself, and it's basically some people who knew her are at home and they're having a Skype conversation. And then they start dying one by one, and the, the, the question initially is, who's doing it? Uh, you kind of work that out relatively fast. Then it's, how are they doing it? And you kind of work that out relatively fast yeah. as well. And then it's, well, out of all these kids, why is she tar- why, why are they being targeted? And exactly how, com- how responsible is each of them for what happened to her? Yeah. Um, I liked this well enough because it it accepted early on that all the characters are utterly unlikable and you're okay with most of them dying um particularly as they throw each under other each other under the uh, virtual bus <laughs> with great alacrity that's that's the only part i really liked was uh getting them to turn on each other uh everything else i just found underwhelming and stupid yeah. es- especially the the, uh, the the method of execution so to speak yes yeah. <laughs> Uh, you know, because uh, teenage girl is now something and is able to to hack swords the internet's with the gooey firewall interfaces and just all. <laughs> yeah, is is able to. It's sh- in the internet. <laughs> yeah, a- able to control uh, way more than the U.S. government can. Like. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's it's okay. I mean, it's no great shakes. It's disposable. Uh, there are a couple of interesting kill moments that are, mm. that are all right. Um, I'm not a, a huge fan of this, but I don't hate it. Um, I mean, honestly, it feels like a, a somebody took a good idea for a VHS segment, um, but nobody was making a VHS film that week, and <laughs> they kind of pad it out to 90 minutes. And this is one of those ones where you genuinely could have done the hot. The oh, same it could have thing. been 30, easy. Oh. Um, give me a, a, a good editor and, and uh, a proper hatchet to take to a script. Uh, I could have done this in 20. <laughs> any, any further bits? <laughs> take it down to 15. 15, 15, 14, 14. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is a, an interesting enough short. Kind of ballasted out way beyond what it needs to be. Um, so it was an SNL sketch. Yeah, I and mean, it's... it's uh, and she used a uh, uh, Apple product, and I just can't get behind that. Oh yeah, well you know, <laughs> they used a Mac. They must die. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, I don't know. I I really feel like we should have some better horror. Yeah. Um, and keep some incest going. And yeah, 
Incest is the theme of the week, seemingly. Uh, but uh, the re-release of a classic. Um, and I, you know, I don't use that term too often, but uh, Wes Craven's The People Under the Stairs getting a long overdue re-release in a beautiful edition. Oh yeah, yeah, it was, it was packed pretty. with extras with like pretty much everybody who's still alive and it's not just the standard like I really liked being on set. It's like really beautiful in-depth discussion about acting process and how they created one of the best murder houses in cinema. <laughs> um, interesting point. This film uh, was number one the week after House Party 2. Well, see, it was which the house the, kind of time. Which were the only two films with African-American leads <laughs> <laughs> that were number one in, in 1991. Um, this is basically Wes Craven doing a Brothers Grimm-style fairy tale yeah. in, a, in the most urban ghetto of ghettos. Well, uh, when when I was a youngster, I saw it in the theater, and um, I liked it, but I wasn't quite aware. And as I was watching it, this really struck me as um, much like in the vein of a, a, a child's grand story, like Peter Pan or something, like where it it, it wasn't so much horror to me as as it was like a, a, a boy's adventure. Now, obviously, the the window dressing is is a little bit uh, grimier than, like, say, Peter Pan. Yeah. But but that's that's how I took it. It was it was just kind of like Peter Pan. I mean, like, you know, you've got you've got a, a one handed pirate who's trying to feed people to a crocodile. <laughs> I mean, the darkness <laughs> is is in there. Mm-hmm. And the basic story, and incredibly timely on this re release as well. When race relations are such a core core part of the of the American discourse at the moment. Really fascinating new time. Um, uh, Brandon Adams plays a, 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 a young boy called Fool, and you're introduced to this name at the beginning uh, through a tarot reading that basically says that you know, it, it kind of does something very subtly at the beginning, which says, "Yes, you are going to go through horrible times, but you will come out the other side much stronger." So you're automatically told that this you know lovable yeah, don't worry, don't worry, twelve-year-old tyke <laughs> is going to survive to the end. It's like we aren't going to kill him, but he's going to go through. A, a real test that his family is is utterly poverty stricken. They're about to be thrown out on the streets from this house that is this, this apartment complex that is filled with junkies, drug dealers. Um, uh, it's, yeah, it's basically like a squatter station. Yeah, it's uh, they are the last actual rent payers in there, and this place is, is scheduled for demolition. And it's like, how do we stay in here? Uh, enter Ving Rames, a a pre um, pulp fiction pulp fiction Ving Rames. Uh, when nobody really knew him as, other than this guy who occasionally like, turns up as a heavy in things. And he, and he was a, a mere slip of a being Rames. <laughs> well, no, he was still quite... I, I wouldn't have argued with him. Who oh, says, no, no, but the he only had way, not bulked up yet. No, I mean, he wasn't really like, I have no neck thing, Rames. Um, but he, he says the only way for you, the family to stay here is we rob the house of your landlords who have a lot of gold hidden away and they got you know we, I mean get it sold and then like it'll all be fine which and sounds then, ridiculous yeah but it's like this scent, but you're already in this kind of fairy tale world like you mm-hmm. said um they break into the house only to discover that it's kind of a combination of um HH Holmes murder house <laughs> um and um and the Winchester house the Winchester house and and also uh 
the witch's house from Hansel and Gretel, um, because the uh, the couple who own it, uh, 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 Daddy, played by Everett McGill, in a wonderful scene chewing performance, and Mommy, played by uh, Wen- uh, Wendy Roble, who just extraordinary performances from both of them. They just take it to the highest extremes of high gothic and get away with it. Yeah, because that they set the tone, and the house is filled with tunnels and passages and it makes you feel like this insanity of the of, of a inbred american lower aristocracy <laughs> um and there are there are secrets within the house this is it's in, in parts a fun ride um that works extraordinarily well but it's also as wes craven is at his best he tells parables about modern america like the original um last house on the left is a is a parable about how america talks about murder Mm -hmm. and glamorizes it in crime and in music this is a parable about at the end of the day rich white people making money off of poor black people and regarding them as disposable and something to be consumed quite literally (laughs) (laughs) this is i i mean this is wonderful I mean, this is one of the... I, I think this is an opportunity for this to be dis- rediscovered as one of the great pieces of American Gothic. Oh, absolutely, yeah. There's there's not much to add to that summation. It's just... It, it's... I don't want to say a joyride, because joy is not the, the, the right word for it, but it takes you on a trip, and, yeah. it's, and it's an enjoyable trip all the way through. And I, I was very divided on... Uh, i got to say, on what to say is my pick of the week this week, but I think... You know, I watched it when it first came out, and I and I really enjoyed it. And I rewatched it this time, and I was I was just consistently blown away by how brilliant and subversive and subtle. And at the time, it seemed timely. And the fact that we're twenty four years later, and everything it talks about still is on. still spot on. And even if you take away the political subtext, it just works so well as kind of a an entry-level horror. Yes, you know, yeah, I know, absolutely. There's a, there's a, a handful good of moments of gore, nothing too extreme. Um, I think, you know, a, a hardened 10-year-old <laughs> will get a lot from this. Uh, this is just a, a, a wonderful, wonderful piece of cinema. It's a great addition. Like I said, it is loaded with all the best extras that you could that you expect from a good Screen Factory release. Uh, nothing but praise for this both for its time uh, at the time and now i think it's actually strengthened over time so this is this is my pick of the week i gotta say i mean because i i was looking forward to its release and then i'm like holy hell this is <laughs> god people should make more films like this that are this daring at every level well they should make movies again yeah that'd be a a, a good idea uh, <laughs> it's a crazy plan but it might just work um Moving on to a, a film that uh, was actually a very close contender for uh, my pick of the week. Uh, I, you know, near but didn't quite make it uh, just because I think, you know, people on the stage is so good. I don't know whether you had a chance to see this, but White God, which is just spectacular. <laughs> yeah, I, <laughs> this I didn't is get a chance. A, um, can award winning. Um, uh, Hungarian film about what happens when the dogs take over. 
This sounds like it's going to be goofy as all hell. That this is going to be something Cujo-esque, or it's going to be uh, one of those classic 1970s like Kingdom of the Spiders or Kingdom of the Animals, where like, oh, the critters have all gone crazy and super intelligent. It's like, no, they haven't. <laughs> um, this, uh, the opening shot is wonderful. Um, it uh, features uh, this uh, young actress, and uh, uh, I really am going to apologize to all our Hungarian listeners. Zofia? Uh, Zofia Stora? I just, sorry. Sota. Sota. I, I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry, so apologetic. Uh, as Lily, um, who's this young girl, and she's cycling home from, obviously, music practice of some kind, because you can see her, in, her instrument in her backpack. And suddenly a dog appears running behind her. And another dog. 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 And there's just hundreds of dogs running after her. And this is the pre-credit sequence. You're just like, they're clearly going to kill her. They're clearly going to eat her. What the hell? And the film then ex- kind of develops uh, this wonderful backstory of basically some of it's very Hungarian um, because Hungary does have a big problem with wild street dogs and they're mm-hmm. big dogs so they're very protective of, bre- of certain breeds that are acceptable and the other ones have to be taken away and, 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 and executed uh, and euthanized and the girl has one of these dogs her mother lets her keep it but then she goes to stay with her father who says, no, you can't keep the dog, you've got to throw it out. You know, either you let it go, or we're going to take it to the shelter to be euthanized. And, and she's like, well, I'm not going to take it to the shelter. She lets it go, and then the, the, the story splits, and it follows her as she contends with the fact that she's got a very difficult relationship with her father. Uh, and she's still looking for the dog that she loves. Uh, and the dog's story, as it gets handed around and like hunted, and you suddenly go... The dog doesn't become super intelligent or you know, gain some weird, like, ah, this is how I destroy humanity. It's still always a dog. Um, but you feel for what it is put through by people. It's used to, you know, as a, a fighting dog, and it's sold, and it's abused. Uh, and finally it goes, no. And, it, you know, it breaks out, and the other dogs go... We can do Just that. Follow him. <laughs> but yeah, oh, this is a remarkable movie. Uh, as a dog lover, uh, I, I really love that it said something smart about how dogs behave and how they interact. And it actually felt like somebody had gone, "We're not going to have a four-legged human." At every stage, you feel like this is still a dog. That there is this loyalty that it wants to feel towards the people it, it loves, even when they abuse it. Um, and the moment where it, where the, the switch flips and it's like fuck you I'm, gonna, I'm just gonna eat your face off you're kind of like yeah no no the dog's in the right yeah we're <laughs> horrible to dogs we are we are terribly abusive um to describe this as a horror movie would be very definitely wrong this kind of sits in a a very peculiar genre uh all of its own it is very very eastern european <laughs> but it, it's it's extraordinarily shot uh the lead actress who i I think she's about 13 or 14 is great in it she gives that sense of like you know the only thing she really loves is her dog and she has a very frustrated relationship with everybody else um yeah uh, 
fully recommend this as well. I mean, like I said, this was on a knife edge of, of being uh, my pick of the week. But you uh, just feel that dogs uh, aren't equal to people, so you chose the, the other one instead. Uh, never say that. <laughs> you don't want to know my opinion on the comparative merits of the two. Um, actually, I uh, very quickly deal with a, another... Um, uh, another... Uh, film that I saw that also has kind of a uh, an Eastern European uh, connection which is Patchtown. I don't think you had a chance to see this. Um, this is a very weird little um, it's it's a musical Oh, okay, <laughs> cool. I'm glad I missed. Uh, <laughs> but it's a musical about where Cabbage Patch Kids come from. Oh! <laughs> Patches, I assumed. Well, the thing is, the Cabbage Patch Kids were actually based on the Russian myth that, uh, you know, the rest of the, uh, Europe goes, you know, storks bring mm-hmm. uh, babies. But in, in Russia, uh, babies come from the Cabbage Patch. Oh, all right. This has this very weird story that basically, it kind of sets up this, this grand mythology that uh, this toy maker finds the original Cabbage Patch world where all the, ca- where all the babies come from. Um, and develops this this because he can't look after them all. He develops this way to turn them into dolls, where they can then go to be sold to, to young girls who will then look after them until the point where they don't like them anymore. Then they are sent back to the cabbage patch. But by this point, the toy maker the, trust me, hang on in there. <laughs> the toy maker has died, and his son, who feels very bitter towards all these proxy children, uh, has decided he's taking over. And he uses the returned children, turns them back into um, into what is now adults, and has them work as factory workers in his production line. It's very peculiar. It's um, going to appeal uh, to people who like films like Repo Man um, or um, Darren Bozeman's current uh, Devil's Carnival series. Okay, um, it's gothic again in that kind of you know middle european way uh very charming hmm. uh some of the it, it, there's no real standout songs in it which is kind of a problem for this kind of thing but it's you know it's innovative um it's yeah you know, i said like i said if you like repo man if you like uh devil's carnival uh i would undoubtedly give this a shot um because it does have this and it does talk about I think actually more successfully than Toy Story 3, which is a film I have so many issues with, don't get me started. Uh, you know, it does talk about you know, the disposability of toys and the fickleness of, of, um, of the heart, hearts of young children. But then, you know, do they all, you know, the fact that if you ever see a toy that you had when you were a kid and you see it, you're like, I really wish I still had that. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it does talk about those in kind of, you know, nice and subtle ways. The performances are, are across the board pretty damn strong. It's two of the best performances are actually uh, the sidekicks. One of whom is this uh, uh, miniature uh, toy snatcher. Um, he's a, he's actually a, a Canadian comedian, and he's yeah, I don't know whether they use CG or he's just that short. Uh, but he's about five foot tall in this. But he has wonderful conversations about kidnapping gloves and like you know the proper way to kidnap people. Uh, and then there's this one of the uh, character who is this truck driver. Uh, who helps a couple of characters who run away from Patchtown and try to go to the real world. And it's so ridiculously, wonderfully overblown that he's glorious. Uh, and, you know, it's... Yeah. It's, it, it is a very odd little film. But like I said, if you if you feel like you're in that kind of waters, 
which isn't very many people, but you know, Devil's Carnival is picking up a big, big fan following, and this the second in the uh, the series is coming pretty soon. They're only like an hour long. Bozeman's doing these kind of miniature interlinked um, uh, musicals that I, I actually really like. So I think yeah, this did speak to my sensibilities, but I could see a lot of people are going to go no. But like I said, you know, if if you like Repo, yeah, I I think definitely give this a, a oh wait repo the genetic opera or? yeah okay yeah Not repo man very different to repo yeah, man. That, that's why i was like huh i love repo man but no no, no. musicals but you may still like this actually you know you may still get a, I a certain, really despise musicals uh there's not that many numbers in it there's a few you know but no it's not you know wall to wall you're not singing because they found a penny <laughs> they got the mustard out <laughs> Thank you for that that, that uh, unsolicited moment from Buffy. Um, very different in tone. Uh, and again, a very close contender for me for my pick of the week. Um, back to Manhattan we go. <laughs> for yet another, yet another story of people with a fair amount of money knocking around and like some spare time on their hands to do nonsense. <laughs> yeah. uh, five to seven. Um, uh, starring um, Anton Yelchin as uh, a... A struggling-ish writer. Uh, he's still got enough money to actually afford, afford that, an apartment that's what I was in thinking, Manhattan, yeah. so he's not doing he's not doing horribly badly. And he doesn't have a roommate. No, he's actually <laughs> so I'm like yeah, I'm like if if this is struggling, count me. Go for it, yeah. Um, who one day uh, bumps into this uh, this woman uh, played uh, by uh, uh, oh again my French. Uh, <laughs> I am having a great day with like <laughs> with Bernice Bernice Malo. Um I'm having a great day with with uh, foreign pronunciations. Um, they have an immediate spark between them. I mean, she is clearly um, wealthy and French uh, and it's all cultured and extremely so in the way you know in a very different way to him. That right, he's kind he, of like he's, he's no like, slouch, but yeah, he's no slouch. But he, his, you know, he's he likes a high end hot dog. <laughs> yes, know? he yeah. he if he's if he's got to have uh, cola, he prefers it either be imported Mexican or draft. Yeah, one yeah. of the two. He'll, he'll order the Heineken. Ooh, he's yeah. a, he's a fancy kind of fella. Um, and you just think initially that oh, this is going to be kind of one of those opposites attract uh, relationships. Uh, until she drops the bombshell that actually she's the wife of a um, French ambassador, and that no, 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 it's fine. They can have an affair. That, no, that's, that's it. A, yeah. <laughs> and it's like he goes, what? And she's like, no, no, we we, we can have an affair, uh, but our relationship has to be between five and five in the evening and seven. You know, that's that's when I'm free because I've got to look after the kids for the rest of the day and then my husband gets home at seven so we, we have to have a five to seven relationship which leads to Anton Yelchin's great line about you know, really, how, could, how could the French have a, not only do this but have a time of day carved out for it well of course he finally you know, otherwise the narrative would fall apart very quickly he goes okay I can live with that well the question then is can, can he really live with it can she really live with it um, you know, I was watching this and I was like this is the kind of film that people think Woody Allen is is still making, but he's not. Actually, yeah, that the, the, that kind of thought ran through my head too. That you know, you increasingly feel these days with Woody Allen films that if he cast somebody like Anton Yelchin, it would so clearly just be as a proxy for himself. Mm-hmm. 
and you'll be going you basically be him going nobody's buying me in a love scene with this lady anymore so I'm just gonna <laughs> you know have my own private cut where I CG Anton Yelchin's head out and put my own on it's like oh creepy yeah, as well. apparently a 50 year age gap is too much for the audience <laughs> <laughs> dear Woody age is something and a number uh no I found again I found this actually quite charming you know it, it's not as um I don't think it's thought provoking as much. Yeah. Mm, no, um, but it's it's witty. Uh. Yeah, if you if you if you don't try to pick apart uh, the viewpoints that facilitate the the, the lifestyle, if, as long as you don't actually think too much about that and just run with the premise, then it's then it's enjoyable. But uh, otherwise, you, you just see how inherently destructive the way it is set up is. Yeah, I mean it's um, it it poodles along through its duration and you get to the end and you go yeah that kind of ended up where I expected to I mean this is obviously the kind of film where like it can't end well for everybody right you know you have a a love triangle which actually becomes quite impressively uh, with the addition of Olivia Thirlby um, as the um, uh, the husband's other lover Mm -hmm. Uh, that you know that that works really nicely well I thought that Valerie uh, the husband if if you're gonna uh, have a fling with 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 somebody's wife, like he's the dude you want you want to be married to her because he was really cool and generous about the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, he, that's the thing. I mean, they they all know what the situation is, and there's at one point there's this uh, there's actually a dinner party where they're all there, and it's just like oh yeah, um, and uh, every scene is structured to contrast with another scene. So mm. that that sequence is like, look, we bought our lovers. We're all civilized about this. Very French approach to these things um, or at least a perception of what the French are like they're, they're, they're more forgiving of adultery but they ain't, they ain't necessarily yeah, no, forgiving it's, yeah, it's, it seems like they're pushing a point too far and then that contrasts wonderfully with uh, a great sequence where uh, uh, Yelton's character takes his lover to meet his parents over dinner played gloriously by Frank Langella and, and Glenn Close Oh yeah, yeah. No, the, possibly, that, they were a treat. Oh, the, the I, I, I did have to say I think somebody had been watching um, early versions of of the of uh, the elder Gellers from Friends when casting them because like she refuses to sit down and uh, sit down because they they don't have plastic chairs at this fancy restaurant and he'll only have tap water. <laughs> and it's like it's like ah oh, yeah, very Gellerish. Uh, but yeah, I, I think. This really was a. This is a win for me. I, I found it very charming. Yeah, I, I. I don't know. I, I. I found ultimately its conclusion to be sad, and not really life affirming. Um, and the, I think the end totally fell for me. And and just the way like, and, and visually the way the way they they kind of aged him a little bit. Yeah. It was like you're not aged. You're you just look like shit. Yeah, <laughs> he did look like he'd been on the back end of a three day band. No, and I kind of liked the end because you know. I, the way it sets everything up, you're not going to have a happy resolution. Somebody's going to oh, no, no. hurt. Uh, yeah. and, it, and the whole thing is like, when you do something like this, you know, who are you prepared to hurt in the process? But it's never like, you know, huge screaming matches or great tragic sequences. It really is like, you know, this is the kind of thing that you'll do, and in 10 years' time, your life will be different. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very forgiving in that way. You know, it's it's uh, you know, I I liked it. Like I said, I think this is the kind of film people think Woody Allen still makes. 
Uh, whereas, you know, he's kind of gone, I, I want to make a, a movie about books I read when I was 10. Everything basically now is, is you know, Radio Days Redux. He's, he's just like, <laughs> you know, he, he's, he's hitting that same meme. Plus, I like Yelchin. I don't know why, but I like, he's one of these actors that really works for me. Well, he's giving uh, Koenig a run for his money. Yeah. So, you know, on... I think it's time for a couple of documentaries. All right. Yeah. Okay. Let, let's start off with um, uh, Lambert and Stamp, a.k.a. You? the other members of The Who that you've never heard of. But but you definitely uh, are the better for them. Yes. Yeah. Because basically there's not... There's, there's no Who without... Uh, without uh, Lambert and Stamp. Yeah, it's like it's like they're a less uh, reprehensible Malcolm McLaren. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's not hard. <laughs> no, that's not difficult at or, all. Or, or Colonel uh, uh, Colonel Parker, who yeah. didn't who didn't make make his money, uh, you know, putting chickens on on uh, <laughs> on hot plates <laughs> in, the, in the chicken circuit. Yeah, I mean, this is the story of um, uh, Chris Stamp and uh, Kit Lambert, who were. To say they were the managers of the Who kind of undersells their significance. Yeah, I'd say they're more the producers, really. They're, they're more the creators. Yeah. In a, I mean, they find this band of, like, four, at that point, homely, homely gentlemen uh, who had a bit of buzz, but nothing much. Yeah, yeah I, I just find it amazing that, you know, right time, right place for both parties. Yeah, <laughs> and it it, re, you know, and it it puts a new perspective on this because they, the purpose of them hooking up with this band, um, wasn't to have a successful band. Lambert and Stamp were filmmakers who decided that they wanted to make a film about the zeitgeist, which was rock and roll, and they went, well, let's make a documentary about us trying to make a band be successful. So they find these guys, they kind of get along with them, and they remake them in their own image, and they find the talent, particularly in Pete Townsend. Yeah. And this is a really fascinating depiction of how that falls apart. You know, how these two pivotal players get them to the point where they are massively successful. That They are the who. I, I didn't think that I would ever feel sorry for Roger Daltrey, but after watching yeah. this, it was just like, oh, man, this guy really just, he was a commodity. He wasn't really the artist he thought he was going to be. Yeah. I mean, it, I mean, it's, it's clear that, you know, Lambert and Stamp all the way through are going, well, the, this, the big one's going to be Pete Townsend. But it's really fa- fascinating in the early stages where you're kind of looking at it and go, they really didn't, they didn't want to have a successful rock band. They wanted to make a trend, particularly um, Stamp, one who is this closeted gay Oxford graduate from money of the kind of money where you can actually be bankrupt and you're still rich which is one of these points they keep making is like they they did you know basically some of the dodgiest things I've ever heard of managers doing like they got they got a uh, an address um, in the right bit of London so they could go to uh, expensive shops and they'd say and say oh I, I need such and such and I need, I, I need a delivery they go, oh, okay, well, what's your address? And they give them the address, and they go, oh, do you, we'll just put this on account. <laughs> and then they never get charged for it, because the kind of people who live there, you want their business because you could say, oh, I've got them on account. 
they are customers of mine, so it's all fine. And you just basically took it as a write-off and charged everybody else twice as much. And they, you know, he knew how to live wealthily. And they, you know, there is an element of manipulation. And you, you know, the story really is that they they spent years playing the who off against each other and really thought that Townsend was the only one who was going to go anywhere, that the band had a limited duration, that Entwistle, who sadly is this way too little John Entwistle this. He's kind of like, they mention Ox like twice, and it's mm-hmm. like, oh, he's the guy on with, with um, Keith Moon. It's like, you know, and Daltrey being shoved to the corner when he didn't realise like how successful he should have been. Right. Um, and then they finally all go, no, the who is bigger than these two guys in our vision of us. And it goes horribly wrong from then on and this kind of you feel that there is this film it heals some of those rifts oh hear, hearing uh, hearing them uh, say like yeah Magic Boss wasn't that great yeah it's like okay thanks thank oh, you. They, <laughs> they basically <laughs> throw like half of their own back catalogue under the bus it's like yeah the first couple of albums were good and then we finally got our shit together when we actually do Tommy the movie but wow we did some crap and I'm like <laughs> I've never heard anybody be so honest it was like the, the Beatles none of the members of the Beatles would would honestly admit like White Album's kind of shit really, isn't it <laughs> well and it was what cool seeing Terrence Stamp just because he's he's a uh... Uh, blanking on his first name, other stamps brother. Yeah, he's, he's, uh, so, yeah, because it's Lambert who's the the uh, yeah Kit Lambert. Yeah, is the costume. Uh, yeah, but Terrence Stamp is is, uh, uh, is 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 the stamp of Lambert and Stamp. That's his brother, and he just turns up at various points and goes, "Yeah, my brother was doing this stuff." Well, yeah, I knew it was pretty much. Yeah, my brother was a fuck up, uh, so I was like, "Well, get get a job here." Yeah, <laughs> it's it's fascinating and extremely. It, it poignant and it's documentary in a lot of ways about a bunch of guys who finally are coming to terms with the fact that they have this they had a very toxic relationship that fit that was the end of an extremely successful collaboration and that they're all old enough now and got enough years under the uh, have gone past and enough of them have died that they kind of go they can put stuff aside yeah there's like it's it's silly and there's a, there's a really wonderful shot when they're talking about the tensions between them oh yeah it yeah was film, it was clearly filmed during the shooting process and then in the interview process of um, Daltrey and uh, Stamp out in the garden and the director clearly just saw them out there and just took a shot out and they're clearly having a really heated and bitter conversation about something that Stamp had done because you see this point where he could just kind of deflate where he's like he's admitting to himself that he's done something you never know what that conversation's about they never go back to that mm-hmm. but you really feel like these are you know guys at the end of the who know that there's not long for them to talk about this and to kind of you know if you're a rock and roller and you're you know 70 yeah man, Townsend you're... or Daltrey's age you've got to go to go Wow, it can't be long until something craps out, you know. Like, you know, well, yeah. an organ is going to fall out of my backside before too long. Yeah, I, I found it really charming because mostly they were they were interviewed separately. But when they had the session of Townsend with Daltrey in the recording studio, uh, and and just yeah, acknowledging like you know we we haven't been the best to each other, but we did share this one really great thing, and there's no reason why we can't be friends again. Yeah, you know that was really awesome to see. I mean, it'd be interesting to know exactly when all that footage was shot because I mean they have you know gone back on tour and uh, you know kind of 
reunified to a certain degree with what's left of the band. Fun fact. Do you know who the current uh, drummer for um, uh, The Who is? Uh, Their current touring drummer. uh, Keith Moon Jr.? Nope. Close, though. (laughs) Very close. Ringo Starr's kid. Oh, okay. Yeah. (laughs) I actually got to like in, I actually got to interview Ringo Starr um, when he bought the Ringo Starr All Star uh, All Star Band through Austin, and he could not be prouder. Like he really like he wanted to talk about his son more than anything else <laughs> his entire career. He was like, "Yeah, did, did you know he's actually done more gigs with Oasis than the original drummer had? Because he's also the drummer with Oasis as well, oh, well right. but not with 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 the, the various post Oasis." Um, uh, bands that uh, Noel Gallagher has formed, uh, but he was also the drummer with Oasis for a while as well. So he's like, yeah, he's done that, and like, and he, he knew to the exact number how many shows he's drummed with the Who. And I've never heard Paternal Pride <laughs> quite, and you didn't expect that from from Ringo Starr. No, it's kind of cool. It's who like, is delightful, by the way. He's, he's, uh, you know, he's, he's he's very dry and laconic, but a, a funny guy. Yeah, this is a fascinating documentary about it. I, I, you really come away from it going, there really would have been no Who without these two guys. Oh yeah. Yeah, completely. So, yeah, I mean, if you like music documentaries, I think this is um, definitely uh, a cut above the rest, uh, even if, you know, half of the protagonists of it are dead. Um, <laughs> whereas, oh, my God. Folks, a, another documentary where the death is a pivotal part of it, but, oh, my God, this is a heartbreaker. Um, this is... Um, the latest in the the range um, of I Am documentaries, we we reviewed um, I Am Evil Knievel recently, which is you know, solid, not stellar. The same people did I Am Steve McQueen, which is really good. Uh, they're also responsible for the I Am Bruce Lee documentary, which I think is to this point was the best thing they've done. Huh. Uh, oh God, I Am Chris Farley. Oh my. <laughs> Yeah, uh, <laughs> you are you are a, a hard-hearted human if you are not crying buckets by the end of of just a well an avoidable tragedy. Yeah, I, a, I don't a, really. Sorry, I don't mean to. Oh no, no, but, go ahead. But I don't really see this so much as a documentary uh, because the story is pretty well known. Uh, so really, it's it's seeing how other people who knew him were affected more than the nuts and bolts of his life. Yeah. Uh, that, that's it. Like, uh, uh, it. It's cute to get some of the backstory on some of his more famous characters that he's done. Yeah. Uh, but but really, that the heartbreaking thing is like, yeah, everybody loved this guy. And and he was he seemed to be a genuinely like great person. And, it, and it's weird because Saturday Night Live, it has a long history of producing self-destructive people or attracting self-destructive people and you know Chris Farley's self-destruction a lot of it seemed to be because he was the guy who went this is what those guys did I gotta be like them I've gotta I, I, you know I've gotta be the party guy I've gotta take lots of drugs I've gotta drink and I'm, you know, you know uh, and everybody around him can see him falling apart and they're all going dude yeah, be don't. like John Belushi by Doing the pratfalls by being that, being funny, and having that depth of characterization. Do that. Don't do it by getting blackout drunk and then taking so many speedballs that your heart explodes. Yeah. Don't don't do that. And that's the real tragedy there. And it's really fascinating that they put the context of 
this is a guy that he wasn't just somebody who fell over and you know did pratfalls and did insane pratfalls as everybody pointed out like watch a Chris Farley pratfall he didn't try and break his fall he goes down and his arms are by his side he's just boom face planting like holy holy how are you not dead from that (laughs) you know but they everybody who worked with him is just like he god if you could have anybody back if you could have any of that crew back be him Mm-hmm. Just even if he never performed again, just because he was the sweetest guy you can imagine. Yeah, like like uh, all the charity stuff that he did that he never publicized, you know, stuff like that. But uh, yeah, I don't know what what more there is to say about it other than you you know that there's a huge, especially with Spade, like there's a huge hole left in their in in their hearts that uh, time made dull, but but not erase. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is this really is, and, and the, the nice thing is that they do concentrate so much on the family. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. They they do talk about you know how not just the like he was the middle child and he was always trying to get attention. It's like they actually have his brothers there <laughs> talking about yeah, this is what it was like, and like we were all like that, but he was just better at it, <laughs> you know. Um, uh, and the fact that uh, Matt Foley, motivational speaker. That's actually his brother's name, and his brother's a priest. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, I think for fans of Farley, the the one disappointing thing is that they got a lot of Saturday Night Live material in here, so it's good that they got that. Mm-hmm. Be kind of going, oh god, I wish they had that entire sketch. Yeah, yeah, it you know, would. Or, or that entire bit that would just be wonderful. They did save us the the one thing that if they'd have put that on there, I don't think I would have recovered. Um, was the famous shot of Phil Hartman when Phil Hartman um, left Saturday Night Live and sang goodbye and uh, Farley walks in and just kind of snuggles into him like a three-year-old hearing a lullaby and in the context of what happened to both of them, it's like, oh God I think wisely (laughs) they left that out because that that would have just been too much that would have just killed it and you like you do come away i think appreciating that even if you just think he's the guy that fell over in black sheep and even they kind of go black sheep was really just they you know they wanted to they wanted that they wanted toy boy part two yeah and they didn't really have anything to get it yeah fred wolf even admits it and he wrote it (laughs) yeah he's like yeah we just and you could feel that farley was burning through his kind of shitty I've got to do these contractual obligation movies and he never gets to do his, he never gets his Bill Murray moment no he no. never gets to he never gets his American Buffalo moment and you feel that somewhere in there there's a guy there like Aykroyd points out it's like you know there's just something there that you knew was going to be special and the special you got is nothing like what you could have got five ten years down the line if somebody had had managed to convince him to not od you know which it it almost feels like he was like i have to od at some point because that's what you do when you look like me and you're you're in my gig and this is being said by the guy who makes crystal skull vodka yeah (laughs) but he he does point out it's like you know there's those rare moments where somebody is is so remarkable and you get a pairing that's so perfect and that you know that was you know you know, once upon a time, you you know, it's just a, a tragedy. Um, now let's go on to tragic and Richard more kind of the predi- younger years. More kind of predictable as all fuck. 
<sighs> the Riot Club. Now, I'll let you... Because being English, mm-hmm. and this being a profoundly English film, muchly so, um, I'm really fascinated to get the American take on this. Uh, well, uh, it's interesting because while not born of wealth in any stretch of the imagination, I was married to it for a while. Yeah. Uh, so I've, I've I've got a certain insight as to how the American version of this works, and the the, the takeaway would be not that different. Not that different at all. Apparently, money plus shithead equals this. Yeah. <laughs> I, I gotta say, I was disappointed um, because the beginning was so cheeky and absurd. I was like, all right, I'm gonna be in for a good time. This is gonna be, like, stupid hilarious. Uh, and then it settled into the movie, and it was not the same tone at all. Yeah, we got this this flashback sequence to begin, the, the, uh, back to Oxford in the uh, the 18th century, where this... this uh, dashing young bounder is sleeping with with uh, the the uh, provost of his college's wife and uh, is killed for it <laughs> um and uh, but he you know he is lord riot which and, okay he already won with the name game yeah that's that's kind of although i don't think the term riot existed at that point i think it's a later so i think that may be a historical but I, I need to check on that but you know flash forward uh and it's Contemporary Oxford, and there's a bunch of students going up to Oxford for the first time, and they're all to- they all talk like this. <laughs> apart from a couple of them who are clearly like, "Oh, you're the concessionary Northerner," which is a real thing, <laughs> you know, at, at Oxford. I mean, he's like, ah, oh, God, where privilege goes to breed the next generation of privilege. But the riot forcibly club, or otherwise, yeah, <laughs> inseminate. Um, but the riot club is this this next generation of fairly awful. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, uh, you know, the Skull and Bones, it's not quite analogous, uh, because that that seems to be more of a, the, you know, like, Illuminati secret society ruling the world, whereas this is, like, this is a secret society for uh, fuck bitches get money. Yeah, uh, they're, they're a bunch of spoiled brats who have this initiation ceremony, and they, they let one guy join, and he's slightly less wealthy than they are, but only trivially. Right, yeah, like, his island's small. Right. <laughs> They're all the right kind of chap. They're all they're all the, you know correct. I mean, he, his 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 flaw is that he's um, sleeping with a girl from Bristol. It's gross. I, I mean, know, outrageous. Actually, no, she's from Carlisle, which is like, yeah, really, that's virtually bestiality. And it's like, <laughs> oh god, you guys are all awful. And then you then they do awful things, but they're kind of petty awful. It's like right. rich. Boiled awful until the one final pivotal scene, and then which they is when ramp they ramp it up when they have their dinner, um, and they annoy everybody else in the pub that they're at, and then things kind of get out of hand. <laughs> That's, but yeah, the problem by that point is that you're so repulsed. Well, repulsed and disengaged from the fact that they're all the same guy. Yes. Like yeah. even your quasi heroic figure, I was. I, I, there was a few scenes where I was like, "Is that is that him? Or is that oh, what? They are what I, what one refers to as interchangeable Eric's. <laughs> They're all this bunch of, of wealthy toffs. Um, one of them is slightly dimmer. One of them has frosted tips. Uh, they all wear the same jacket. They oh all, yeah. It, it's there are several scenes where it's like, are you? It's how they're going. Which one's he? 
It's Hang like, on, has he had a moment of redemption, or is he the one who's been a dick for a while? It's it's, like, I don't know what's going on. Yeah, it's kind of like they're a posh version of the Wild Boys. Yeah. <laughs> Which there is actually a... The, somebody paid some money for, for some Duran Duran rights on that one. Yes, they did. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it, the thing is, this is accurate. It does depict those kind of spoil inbreds to a T, the ones who then, you know, it doesn't matter how badly they do at university and everything goes horribly wrong and they, you know, beat people up and puke everywhere and right. sleep with everything. But they're what, still going to get a job with a bank in the city or a law firm. You know, it's like, that's not going to affect anything. Yeah, so what I would say is, like, my, my experience with the American version of this is that uh, the, the message is the same. It's a life without consequence. Yeah. You know, at, at, a, certain, at a certain level, money begets money. Like, that's so... You can't help but succeed, no matter how awful you may be. Yeah. And then it kind of... But it peters out in making that point with any weight or satire yeah, or, yeah. or anything. And it's really not sure what it wants to well, be. That's why I was so hopeful uh, when watching the opening of it. Because I thought, okay, well, we can have some real fun with this and really lampoon it. Yeah. And then, and then it just... Uh, it, it's a stream of urine that just trickles out by the end. Yeah, I mean, they, you can't even sympathize with any of them because they're all fairly unlikable and mm-hmm. interchangeable. Yep. <laughs> I mean, it contrasts very sadly with a, a very under, underseen little film uh, from last year, um, which I like not just because of the title. Um, uh, I think it's called What Richard Did. Uh, not a biography. Um, which actually deals with the question of, like, if you are spoiled... Uh, and in a position of entitlement, um, and you do something really bad, and there's you can you can get away with there being no consequences. You know what is the pressure to accept consequences other than your own conscience? Mm-hmm. And it did that much better. This really was. It's, it's such a wasted opportunity. It's not over the top enough. It's not. I, sensitive enough. It's not. It, it could have yeah. gone in any one of twenty directions, and it just kind of sits in the middle. It sits in the middle of the road. Yeah, and pretty boys, but not devastatingly handsome. Uh, they're the kind of guys who get laid because because they get money. I think that's really what it comes down to. Yeah, I'm horribly, horribly disappointed by by the whole thing. I really wish it was so much better, and it's it's not. You know what? What's that? I have a funny feeling we've come to that most remarkable point of the entire show. Uh, you're talking about, like, the uh, giveaway. Oh, you got to say it with more gumption than that. The yeah. giveaway! Oh, I love the choral effect there. That was, that was delightful. You know what? Let's go out with a bang. In fact, quite a lot of bangs. With uh, Police Story Lockdown, the... <laughs> Of the uh, police story <laughs> franchise. Oh boy! You know, I was I was really afraid that this was going to be Gen X cops all over again. <laughs> Just you know, oh, it's technically a police story, and Jackie Chan's technically in it. But no, but it's, no, it's chock full of Jackie. Yeah, <laughs> oh, and it's Jackie Chan kind of accepting, like doing the wise thing of going. Oh, bits of me hurt. Oh, yeah. I need to be a little bit wiser about some of the stunts. Oh, this one's gonna. This this is gonna 
ache in the morning. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I've seen reactions talking about that. Like, oh, well, the, the, the stunts aren't as good and blah, 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 blah. Uh, but what I really like is that it was kind of grittier and and playing with he's not the the most spectacular specimen of a human being uh, you know like not so much morally but as far as getting uh, his life in order uh, he, which, these days Jackie does have a face like a like a bag of chisels well but what the, the reason why I find it really refreshing is because now Jackie Chan is as like a, a star. It has been marred by, you know, all the illegitimate children that have come out. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, he's, he's not, he can't be squeaky clean anymore. No. So I, I think moving but, in this direction of, of, of a flawed human being is a great, great uh, place for him to take. And he's also doing, like, a lot of big historical dramas. Oh, as yeah, well he loves now, it, yeah. Like, like, these huge epics with, like, they actually get 10,000 extras. Cause yeah. they, shoot it, they shoot in mainland China and they just go, well, okay, we can give you an army. <laughs> uh, will they be in costume? Yeah, we'll, we'll knock some up over the weekend. It'll be fine. And he's doing all that kind of stuff. And that, but for him to return to the Police Story franchise, which you know, for a lot of people, is one of the places that he really found him. Mm-hmm. You know, now the character is kind of this. He's not quite a burnout cop, but he's very definitely you know ha- seen better days. Yes, that's why. Uh, he's, there's a reason why he's a captain now. Yeah, he's uh, uh, trying to reestablish his relationship with. Uh, with his daughter, which you kind of try to work out exactly. A lot of it is about working out exactly why there is so much tension between them, which ties into this super complicated plot. That actually you've got to pay some a lot more attention to than I think any previous oh, yeah. police story. Like, you've <laughs> yeah. actually got to go, there's a narrative. It's not just people getting smacked in the face, but... It's you know it, most of the action is set inside this this really super elaborate nightclub. Oh man, it's, I wanted oh, to go. Oh yeah, it's got like cages and like huge screens and bulletproof glass and it's kind of badass. Um, and, and and Chinese rockabilly. Yes, a lot of Chinese rockabilly. Which like yeah, and basically it's about this gangster trying to work out what happened to his sister. Um, and it, yeah, there is some convenience to the fact that everybody is in the room at the same time but then it turns out there's a reason why they're all in the yeah. room at the same time yeah i actually you know it's it's not the best of the police story films but it's you know actually pretty damn good in a lot of yeah. ways and it's you know it's 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 jackie in a new stage in his career um and you know until he reaches the point where he's like performing out of a wheelchair which probably can't be that far away because my god there's some bruises and damage on that man oh yeah um yeah, I yeah I I gotta say that this is a uh, yeah, so one of the the better Jackie Chan films in quite a while. Uh, there are some extras on here, mainly um, interviews with the uh, with the, the cast and crew. Uh, I, I I would say, as always, with a Jackie Chan film, stay through the credits. Yeah, because <laughs> there's quite a you get to see wacky. Yeah, you get to see, you get to see wacky, and you also get to see the the traditional. Oh no! That a stuntman yeah. just broke his nose again. And there is the wonderful line where he just where, it, where it's actually subtitled where he goes, "Do we have to use a real knife? <laughs> like this seems like a terrible idea." And of course, someone gets stabbed, and they're like, "Oh, oh, oh bleeding, bleeding! Walk, walk it off. Yeah. Put some ice on it." And I love the fact that you know the Hong Kong action movies and those kind of sequences. It shows they have the same attitude to injuries that we developed in, in Britain while playing rugby. You get tackled really hard, and like half the skin is missing off your leg, and you're just told, like, rub some dirt in it, it'll be fine. It's like, which I'm not quite sure where that, where that became medicinal advice. <laughs> of like, rub dirt in the wound. That's brilliant. Well, it's you. full of good bacteria. Yeah, and worms. 
Um, so, yeah, we need a, a question. We need a question. So, good people. Here we go. We need you to follow us um, at one of us uh, net uh, one of us dot net on Twitter. One of us net. Chris in the corner is just correcting me again. He's like, he's been he's very quiet this week. I've been very impressed. I had no sleep. Ah, oh, too much porn. Uh, yes, follow us um, at one of us net on Twitter, uh, and send us an answer uh, using the hashtag uh, police story giveaway. Um, and I've got a question for you. Okay, Jackie Chan made the police story um, films, which are clearly action films about police, and they are stories, therefore police story. What would be the worst trade or skill-based <laughs> um, uh, career to, uh, to make a film franchise about? So uh, I'll throw this one out there. Um proctologist story <laughs> oh plumbing the depths you mean yeah it's like which would be the which would be the worst like what what franchise of action uh, of career centric action movies would you really not want to see well yeah like like uh, a taxing woman you know, <laughs> she, she works for the Japanese IRS and just owns the shit for two movies like. yes I would ever just be like oh Rubber stamp on your head. Uh, so yes, uh, answer that question um, and put it in the format of blank story. Uh, follow us at, um, at one of us net. Uh, use the hashtag police story giveaway. Can't be simpler. And a copy of that will be winging its way, or actually, you know, mailing its way to you. Drumming uh, its way. You will be. <laughs> so yeah. Come to the end again. Well, there we go. We've seen a lot of Drek. Yep. We've seen, seen, uh, some, seen some good stuff this seen week. Some quality stuff. Uh, yeah. Uh, thanks, Joe, yet again. Thanks, Richard. Yeah, and uh, to uh, give us the uh, traditional sign-off, um, no releases too big, no releases too small. From Criterion to Catastrophe, we review them all. Uh, bye! Bye! <laughs>